And now, Hollywood Prospectus. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Hold your applause. Cheer. Hello and welcome to the Hollywood Prospectus Podcast. My name is Chris Ryan. I am a writer for Grantland.com. And on the other line, is that an e-cigarette? It's Andy Greenwald! Buddy, it is. It is an e-cigarette. I need one. Vape life. I need one. This is going to be an edgy pod. This yeah. is edgier than... You just had thing. a Seinfeldian odyssey across New York City, planes and trains and automobiles. Are you familiar with the Michael Douglas film Falling Down? Uh, vaguely, yeah. Yeah, so is everyone in my path over the last 10 minutes. I'm ready. That's good. I'm keyed up. That's good. Yeah, you got their shirt for it. Uh, anyway. <laughs> this, you, there was a period when you were wearing a leather jacket on our podcast. Yeah, but like that was a t-shirt. A, I, that, that was cool. You're cool. You look like a petite bateau model today. That's nice. That's Do always people still rock petite goal. bateau? Is that still a thing? I had a onesie for my infant. It yeah. was Petit Bateau. Is that, and that's not even a metaphor. Do they only sell that in Delaware? Is this Grantland's leading baby fashion podcast, <laughs> or do you think we're in contention with a few others? Look, if there's one thing I know a lot about, it's child rearing. <laughs> it's true. You rear a lot of children. <laughs> Me and this is good. This is We're already into the good stuff. It's Andy, good we're going to talk about uh, True, Detecto- True Detective Episode 3. We're going to talk mm-hmm. about one of our new favorite shows, yes. Mr. Robot. And then we're going to talk about the greatest interview an actor has ever given an adult men's magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but first, let's go to True Detective. Ray alive. Yeah. Was there really any doubt? Uh, no. Maybe. <laughs> Not really, <laughs> I mean, right? I mean, we had talked about how, you know, in the in the sort of this post-Jon Snow world, everything is possible. But I just felt like if that dude had caught for real two slugs in the chest, we would have seen a little bit more more spume you know like it would have been a little bit more graphic i like that your reasoning behind this was pure csi like you just thought (laughs) he just thought the blood flow was inaccurate yeah like that's how you watch tv that's not how a shotgun shell reverberates off a human cavity sir you you are you are william peterson with the with the the microscope microscope monocle on i wish my thought about it was 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 more basic. I mean, I was I was shocked when I watched it, and I thought it was shocking. I mean, episode two in a good way because yeah. this stuff happens now. I mean, this is one of the the few surprise curveballs that the I'm, I'm was, I was going to use a baseball metaphor. I, anyway, TV shows can do this now. Sure, they can yeah. shock you, and it's funny to think about that because it was only ten years ago when ABC wanted to. I mean, ABC didn't want to. J.J. Abrams wanted to do just this with Lost, right? Like the character of Jack was initially going to be played by Michael Keaton, and he was going to die at the one hour mark of the two hour pilot and shock everyone, and then Kate was going to be the main character. Interesting. Uh, and ABC was like, we don't want to do that to our audience <laughs> because we're spending fifteen million dollars on this pilot about weirdos on an island. But and now Michael that's Keaton almost was become, like, you mean I have to work for more than 45 minutes on this show? He, well, then he, 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 quote, gracefully bowed out. Um, yeah. But, but now it's become, it's become a trope, this sort of, sort of surprise death. Um, we've seen it on a bunch of shows, and even on obscure shows like the British cop show Babylon that I liked a lot back in the beginning of the year. So it would have been acceptable, but it would have been dis- disheartening. Yeah, say, well, I t- you and I think that he's the heart and soul of a sh- series that is generally lacks both we say. uh we talked when after we talked last week i thought you were you kind of made me second guess myself a little bit because you pointed out just how deep bench on this show right now and they could afford right. to lose somebody and and kind of still manage to have quite a lot of star power on the show right now and and 
Um, like you said, Ray had kind of gone through some goodbyes at the end of that second episode, so it made sense. But instead, we got a little Conway Twitty. We got a little Fred <laughs> Ward action. We got some David Lynch dream sequences. Yeah. Someone wrote me today, uh, tweeted at me, is it just me or was there a little bit of a Twin Peaks vibe from the opening of True Detective? I'm like, oh, no, that's just you. Yeah. <laughs> Pizzolatto has no idea what any of that is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, vibe, um, wholesale ripoff, whatever you want to call it. The truth is, though, I, I like that stuff. I mean, obviously, Twin Peaks may be my favorite show of all time, but I like when True Detective gets a little bit weirder because, as we've talked about and as we've seen in many interviews, I don't think Nick Pizzolatto is a, um, what's the word, fun guy? He doesn't seem to be like a guy, that's, he's not really a laugh riot Taylor Kitsch would disagree. I just was reading an interview about their eight-hour <laughs> bar crawls in Ojai. It was not really I, fun. I saw this. Are there enough bars in Ojai to last eight hours or I, are they I like juice know. cleanses in between? Um, no, but... The show is better when it's allowed to get weirder on the edges, and so this was the episode that for me made the was probably the best of the three that we you know we saw three right critics saw three ahead of time and this yeah. was the last of them and I thought this was the best of them because it let its freak flag fly a little bit not just in that opening scene but in the great stuff with the mayor and the mayor's home life which is yeah. um, unconventional yeah, to yeah. say the least mail order uh, brides uh, sons mail order brides who so- seem to have lots of vocational opportunities <laughs> yeah and maybe maybe likes to get wet off of uh, you know a number of bad habits that's the theme for this season uh wanted to get to the part of the show that i thought was so so far i think if you could make the one place where the seams are showing a little bit is just like taylor kitsch not being in the same room with people yeah uh he's done i think two scenes with the kind of cast for the most part and he bumps into vince vaughn in the club but he did one car scene with Rachel McAdams, and he yeah. has sort of been in the room when, uh, you know, Dan from Deadwood and Colin Farrell and McAdams are in that warehouse, like totally normal rent rent out a storage we, locker hangout. Can we talk know? about that? Like, is that what cops in small towns do when they're yeah? They're like, we're really things? strapped just, for cash, so we're going to get yeah. you a public storage unit to hang out in. It should be really there's nice. An aerop- <laughs> there's an airplane hangar that the mayor's not using at the moment for his coke orgies. So yeah, why don't you just seriously. bring your bring your tack boards in there? But the second half of the episode last night was very much uh, dominated by Kitch's storyline. Um, yeah, and. His, uh, we I don't think we ever got the guy's name, uh, sadly, but the his comrade in arms, his comrade yeah. in bed, uh, one yeah. time, and I thought that that was a really great scene. Um, not only just because it deepened the character so much, but Pizzolatto's writing and True Detective specifically tends to be so on the nose and really like in your face. Like you know, Matthew Connie literally lectured us for eight hours last year, yes. and. When people who are potentially bad men come onto the screen, they tend to say, "I'm a bad, I'm a bad man." Yeah, man. and and Vince Vaughn and Carl Con Farrell and, and even yeah. McAdams to some extent have been very upfront with like they're just like I like to get wet off bad habits. Like, do I feel diminished? You know, I need to get free of this or that, and it's very like upfront. And I think that the three of them are all very much aware of the sort of machinations that are happening off camera to sort of point them in the directions that they're going, and they almost feel like. They're fighting against a decided fate in some ways. Mm-hmm. But uh, the Paul Woodrow character, played by Taylor Kitsch, is a little bit more of a babe in the woods. And he's dealing with stuff that I don't think he can articulate, whether it's his issues with his uh, lovely mother, played by Lolita Davidovich, or this sort of latent homosexuality that I think 
he's grappling with and that it comes to the forefront. But the reason I like that scene uh, with his ex-lover was just because they didn't actually say it, you know, like for the yes. most part. They were talking like he keeps trying to push it back to just two guys hanging out at the bike races, like total normal. And that's, that guy is like, to do. I need to talk about this. This is part of my healing process, but this is also like the last time I remember being happy. And it was just sort of a, a really interesting note. Um, he, that character, and a couple of the very Chekhov's uh, set photographer and Chekhov's tax assistant on the film set, I think are going to come back into play at some point. But what did you think of uh, of, of the Woodrow backstory? Well, I, I think, that, first of all, the, the the argument you're making, you made so well in the recap you wrote today, because you were really gunning for my spot and pushing me off the corner, because That's these right. recaps Pushing you off your treasured true detective corner. <laughs> this piece you wrote today was the best one yet, I Thank have you. to say. That's I haven't nice spoken to you about it, um, because I was at the, uh, the dog track, or wherever those guys yeah. were. But um, here's Here's what I find really interesting about this season so far, and it, and it does tie into what, what, what old Paul is, is doing as well. There really is, so far, no detection on a show called True Detective this season, right? Last year, many people made this analogy, but the real detective in the room was the audience trying to piece these things yes. together because it did seem like there was a monster at the end of that particular dream, and everyone was trying to get to it, identify it, unmask it. And it could have been literally a monster because we were yes. playing with the occult and we were playing with the idea of this hell on earth that we thought maybe that there was something supernatural about what we were watching. And at the end, it was a haunted house. And, you know, and I wrote this in my piece. It was kind of a Scooby-Doo haunted house because the bad guy was wearing a bad mask and then it was just sort of yeah. a crazy guy. And that was the end of it. This year, there really is no detection. There yeah, is Ben no... Casper is not exactly Laura Palmer. <laughs> no, exactly. There's no real mystery. There's sort of hints of strangeness on the margins. But I don't, I don't know if anyone actually cares who, why, or what. Yeah, let me ask that you makes this. Sense. And, I had and, to... and wait, let me just draw that into what we've talked about yeah. in the past. For those of us who really like crime books, as we always say that we do, and we do, the best things about those books are not the specifics of the mystery. Yeah, that's they exactly never, right. They never are. And this is a season where we're being given those same things, not only in a TV format, which is unfamiliar, but by someone who I don't think in his writing is as subtle or as... I don't even know how to how, how to describe it. Dexterous, fluid, I don't know. We're, we're sort of being hit in the same way as we were the first season, but we're not being but the but it's not the punches aren't really landing. So I'm getting a lot of sense of people being frustrated by that when in fact the lack of the big mystery is allowing me to instead of worrying about that or, or poking holes in it, appreciate the very small specific things that we do get. And those things are the mayor's son. Those things are Fred Ward's great scene where his son brings him weed and he picks his badge out of the trash yeah so so that again we even would bring it all the way back to taylor kitsch that's not a mystery like that was i don't know whether pizzolato thought he was tricking us maybe like oh he likes ladies but has to take a mystery pill before he sleeps with them i don't know if he thought that he was or not but that was pretty much telegraphed from the very first episode but even though we knew what was coming we didn't it, it allowed it because let me rephrase because we knew it was coming it allowed us to appreciate the way it played out yeah and i think that we were led to believe maybe early on that whether his sexual dysfunction and his emotionally closed offness, his emotional like sort of closed offness, might have been related to the more you know traditional concept of PTSD from whatever right. happened to him in in the war that he served in. But is he? I, I I couldn't tell. Is that Afghanistan or Iraq that he's supposed to have been in? I think he says Afghanistan. Okay. Um, and I think. Well, here's this actually 
that that is actually an illustration of an interesting point. I, to write these recreate caps, I've watched each episode probably cumulatively three times, which is a, a lot of time wow. to spend. Well, not yeah. you, you know, How you watch you it once through and then you kind of like cut, go yeah. back through and kind of make sure you got the order of scenes right or whatever. Uh, I don't think I could explain to you what this mystery is. Like if I told, if I asked you to tell me what like porpoise and catalyst are and their role in the Ben Casper yeah. affair, like you probably couldn't tell me just off of watching them once right no yeah not at all and, and that's and that's the that's what like this show is about this year and it's so sprawling vince vaughn is in one show over here doing something like i feel like he's he's on such a based wave like i can't tell if i'm just not smart enough to get what he's doing yeah but he almost is i'm trying to <laughs> i feel like he's doing a character that like a guy in old school or wedding crashers would pretend to be where he's just yes, like, that's what I'm saying. This yes, is unnatural. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. He is bluffing at Christopher Walken's dinner table for an entire HBO series. Yeah. Like, that is, seems to be what he's doing. And that just comes back to it. This is an actor who is good at bluffing. Right. But I don't think that Frank is meant to be bluffing. Right. I feel and like we're supposed to be he's seeing in one him show. McAdams raw. and Velcoro are in the other show. And yeah. kind of Taylor Kitsch is in, in here. It's so sprawling, but the first season was so, actually was so tight because it was two people, two narrators. All of the action was seen through their eyes. And there was a central, very, very compelling mystery that they were trying to solve. And, right. and this one is like, well, there's the rail line, and then there's these murders and these underground sex parties and this prostitute named Tasha. And there's also, like, five different state agencies that are warring for credit slash blame in this case. That It's very it's, – it's really well, pretty Byzantine. We're also talking about something to compare it to the first season. In the first season, you had a, a dynamic that was essentially kind of binary, right? You had Russ Cole being like, I have – trip the light fantastic and i don't like to go back there right and you have another character being like i don't know what you're talking about yeah i like i like steak and two sides <laughs> yeah. and the two sides generally work at phone stores and like to do butt stuff <laughs> like that's that's that was the two characters right yeah. this series so far we have the three and you 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 um you describe this very well in your piece like they're the three main male characters and what they have in common is that they all prefer the fog of war to, to, to put it, you know, sure. to put it one way, like they are all happiest when they are at their most base, at their most right. Like most he corrupt. says, I don't drink because I want to stay angry. Is what Velcoro says in the second. That's episode, right. Episode third episode. That's right. So I don't. I, I I think that might not be exactly true. What I just said because Colin Farrell or Ray's, he's not happy, no. but he certainly is at ease. Almost he slips into being a bad guy as easy as easily as he slips on that ski sure. mask. Um. That's more interesting terrain, I think, in a lot of ways. These people who are trying not to go back to, or, or who are in stuck between the light and the dark side, all of them. And I think you also pointed out the fact that McAdams' character, we just don't really know. She sort of got a lot of burn in the first episode, and I think she's her performance has gotten better the longer she sat yeah. with the character. Um, but where it all goes well, she's sort of become up, the engine know. for the show i mean she's the one who's like giving people tasks she's the one who's sort of pushing the show forward and i'm sure that her and her and kitch have a lot more stuff to like work out over the course of the next it's, couple of episodes but it, it's interesting because the first season so much of it all of the excitement all of the build-up all of the hype really really ended up being about during the experience of watching the first show anyway about how it was going to resolve what is this all going to yeah. mean where are we going um the fact that you know i think 
I was not alone in being kind of disappointed with the ending. I, of course, was also disappointed with the beginning. But I wasn't alone in being disappointed in the ending sort of has didn't really has, – has changed the way that it was remembered to some degree. Whereas this show, I'm enjoying the pieces. I think that for this to be deemed a successful season, though, by – I don't know the viewership at large. It's really going to depend on on the ending because if this ends up being a you know a, a thoughtful, interesting eight hour meditation on whatever it ends up being about that comes you know that tells the complete story, that is a satisfying and worthwhile thing. But it definitely doesn't come blazing out the gate like the first season does, and it's definitely not trying to tell the same kind of story. No. And I I admire that. Yeah. I think that if he wants to, st- if Pizzolatto wants to stay alive, if he wants to stay nimble in this industry in this world it was in some ways a a good way to sort of dodge expectations by telling a completely different kind of story that said i think public sentiment is is going against it so far this season i think people are not enjoying it as much it definitely seems i know we don't like to give too much credence to the cluckers and the bird masks on twitter but i think but i do think public sentiment is firmly what the hell is going on pizzolato drinks your haters tears (laughs) one thing about pizzolato by the way that i didn't realize um, and he's usually not one to keep things close to his close to his chest. Uh, he, he he is on Twitter, but he hasn't tweeted in a year and a half. I didn't know this. And he said, and I have no reason not to believe him, that he does write every episode himself. And the reason he said that is because someone pointed out, not in an accusatory way, but basically saying, like, there are a number of instances of writers getting sole credit for series, but they are, there is an invisible writer's room where they convene a writer's room to sort of help nudge things along, help break yeah, story. Yeah, sure, Sorkin, yeah. But, well, Sorkin is just, was just a lunatic and really did write most things himself and, and used his writer's room as, like, fact-checkers. Okay. But, for example, um, uh, Noah Hawley in Fargo. Oh. Noah Hawley was positioned as a, um, I don't know, peer, contemporary um, uh, rival to Pizzolatto when Fargo he didn't, and True Detective uh, came out last year. He didn't to dispel that notion either. No, he certainly did not. But he also, when I had him on my podcast last year, was very upfront about the fact that he had a writer's room. It was his. He says, you know, it was my idea, my characters, my story, but FX paid Except for... it was Joel and Ethan Cohen's idea and story, I'm sure. Fair <laughs> enough. But that's true. He was pretty upfront about that, too. But they had, you know, four or five people uh, paid on contract to sit at a table and help break it into eight episodes. Did they get so credit? They could, I don't know how they got credit, and maybe they didn't get credit. <laughs> what I mean is maybe they were listed as – Oh, it, like associate – like staff writer or whatever? Associate producers or something, but in order to, but also in order to preserve the aura of authorship. Yeah, sure. They were – it was – every episode was written by Noah Hawley. Um, and so I assumed actually that the similar thing happened here. I don't know how you could possibly assume more than one person comes up with some of this stuff. But but now, yeah, and, and, and that's also what makes this season particularly interesting is yeah. because – you know, it's it's. We always say this about records. You know, a band has their lifetime to make their first album, and then they have eighteen months to make their second, basically, or they write it on tour, and that's always a very, very different thing. Um, Pizzolatto could, when he was just writing novels or short stories or going bar hopping in Ohio, he had plenty of time to craft the first season of True Detective. He yeah. had very little time to do this with insanely high expectation and demand. So. Seeing the crazy flaws that can only come from one person doing something is one of the things that's keeping me watching. You also know uh, that the, the the casting and sort of characterization of the film director in that's this what I wanted to bring up next was shots fired. Can we talk about that? I have <laughs> never seen shade like that. You know, not. I mean, I mean, I'm sure that he would be like, I'm just busting balls. Like that's just fun. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, super fun. Look. The truth about Hollywood stories. So, in case you don't, everyone to fill hates this each in other. is that Carrie Fukunaga was sort of given a lot of credit for the first 
by, the director. by among other people, you and I, uh, as the director of the first season of True Detective and maybe somebody who elevated somewhat more, you know, rudimentary, not rudimentary, but some like he elevated the material to art through mm-hmm. the way he told the story visually. And he, when he won the Best Director Emmy or yes. Golden Globe, Emmy. he did not thank Nick Fitzlotto. Right? No, he did not. Who was also very like creatively responsible for the show, and there had been rumors that those two hadn't gotten along very well. And he did not direct this season due to the almighty scheduling issues. He said, um, "You know." And then so this character pops up in the third episode when they visit this set of a post-apocalyptic uh, movie. And the guy looks a lot like Kerry Fukunaga. With he's, the he's a tall gentleman with a long ponytail, yeah. potentially of, of Asian descent. Uh, and and he this seems to enjoy partying. He seems to enjoy drinking a lot and uh, going to parties with money people and basically not taking his job very seriously. I don't think anyone would accuse Fukunaga of that last part. Except- I don't know him personally. <laughs> except Pizzolatto. And this is really interesting because obviously everyone's going to say, everyone sort of poo-pooed the feud. And Fukunaga is listed as a producer this season. Now that means literally nothing. Right, that was we in his contract. About, yeah. from, that was in his contract from the first season. So he gets his name on it. He gets some. He probably gets some profit participation, but he's not involved at all. And I totally believe him when he said that he didn't want to do this again because it's hugely demanding. Yeah, he especially if you were turning be, it around like as fast as they were turning around. Yes, to do it to do basically two and a half movies in less than a year is mm-hmm. is almost impossible if you were overseeing all of the production. Um, what's really fascinating about this feud is it's very, very... It, it, is a, it is essentially a feud between movies and TV because in movies, the director is the auteur and the director has final yeah. cut and the director gets authorship over the film, generally. Um, in TV, it's the writer. And Pizzolatto, you know, the writer is the one who is in the edit room, usually, crafting the episode. You know, yeah. when I... Um, I was speaking to uh, to Joel Fields, you know, who does my favorite show, The Americans, and he was talking about how many episodes they have completely, essentially rewritten in the edit room. Episodes that didn't work dramatically with the way they stacked the scenes, and then they just go in the edit room and they remake the episodes. Yeah. And so you can imagine two authors in the room trying to do that last season. So I get why that feud exists, but it was pretty wild to just put it out on Front Street like that. It was. Um, we'll obviously keep talking about True Detective over the next couple of weeks, but just based on what you're saying here, I thought that was a really good place to stop and start talking about Mr. Robot. Yeah. Because Mr. Robot is an example of harmony between a director and a writer. Apparently, And yeah. is also an example of you know someone clearly waiting till they got it right to do something. Um, I, I read your piece about it last week. Andy, this show, it's on USA. It is awesome. It's awesome. And it came completely yeah. out of nowhere. It, it feels like it did. Um, when I say that, it wasn't that it wasn't promoted. I mean, it was slightly promoted. But I don't think any – I mean, when I wrote my summer preview a few weeks ago, I was aware that USA was putting on a show called Mr. Robot and Christian Slater was in it. And that's why I didn't include it or seek out any more information yeah. about it. Because let's talk about USA. I mean, USA had a has a, had a very successful brand, and its brand was sunglasses, right? I mean, or, or yeah, actually the parlance TV. of the yeah. industry, Blue Skies TV. Yeah. Basically, NBC in the late 80s, which is a pretty smart brand. And so this was shows like like Burn Notice. And, I, you know, Julia Littman in Sis Suits is really good. I will take her word for first, it. Like, the, like, I watched the first season of Suits, and it's definitely, like, entertaining. But, but they had a formula with, like, Royal Pains, Unnecessary Roughness or whatever, yeah. where it's like, you know, attractive people fixing things, but not really hard things. And that's okay. Like, there's definitely an audience for that. And, in fact, NBC should have made that their brand, and they wouldn't have cratered, I think, in the last decade. But anyway, 
this is not what anyone would have expected. And it was so thrilling to watch something so assured, so expertly done, and so completely unlike everything else on TV. It feels like the parallax view. It feels like uh, some combination of, like, 70s paranoia thrillers with The Matrix, basically. So let's – do you want to talk about the specifics? So this is a show – about a young gentleman, a young hacker slash uh, techie. He works in um, online security for a subcontractor firm, which is, I, th- I believe, the firm, what's the firm called? All, All Safe, Safe Security. Yeah. Um, and uh, his name is Elliot, and he's played by uh, Rami Malek. Rami Malek. Malik? I don't know how to say his name. I've never tried. Uh, yeah. Uh, he, he may know him from The Pacific or The Master. He was in The Master, yeah. yeah. He was in our, one of our favorite films from a couple of years ago, Short Term 12. That's right. Um, and in all those movies, he had this kind of like messianic look in his eye, which I think is why Paul Thomas Anderson put literally put him in a cult yeah. in The Master. But he never – he had a look, but I couldn't tell what kind of performer he was. It turns out he is an incredibly charismatic, magnetic performer. And so the show Mr. Robot puts us not just um, in Elliot's world, but it puts us literally in his head. He addresses the viewer. He thinks that we are his made-up I don't know, imaginary pals or, or at least yeah. his imaginary um, Well, I think observers. that I, I can't tell what that is. I don't know whether that's – I think that there's some – a foot's going to – there's another shooter drop yes. with that and, mechanism, like who uh, he's yes. talking to. Yeah, And we also see the world the way he does, which is definitely heightened and definitely not exactly right. right. Because so they, not only does he com- – he completely paranoid about the world and he has – he sort of has a big brother complex that is not too far off from, you know – I think a lot of uh, right-minded, left-leaning um, uh, thinkers, basically, that the world has become completely corporatized, that we have um, traded our security and our independence um, in favor of the short-term rush of being liked on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, the world is basically one giant debtor's prison with uh, frappuccinos at the end of it. He basically espouses political views that I cannot believe that the NBC Universal Comcast is chill with having him espouse. Yeah, it's not just like Fight Club stuff. It's actually like he's talking about brands and corporations. And and he names names. It's not made up. It's not like you face. You mentioned that things are sort of seen through his perspective, and I think that's going to become an increasingly Mm -hmm. pivotal sort of well, thing par- to partly think about. because he is a functioning morphine addict. But yeah, also and because... also strange. No, so the craziest thing to me is that when I the fir- after the first two minutes of the show, even though you recognize immediately that this is something different visually, it's just really uh, Nordic. Like it. Yeah, the dude who directed the, it, the like, first episode is a Danish director who directed the original European film, uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Yeah, and it's just like the way it frames him against architecture is really interesting. But this is another protagonist on the spectrum. And, uh, you know, you get 120 seconds into the show and you're just like, I don't know if I can deal with this again. Because you've had, I mean, a very healthy representation of people like that on television shows. Um, But it smashes through that. It gives him a lot of really unique quirks and somehow i mean here's the thing is that i think that one thing this show really taps into is the way that we sort of store our communications and and interact with a larger world through social media i think lends a lot of narcissism lends to a lot of narcissism narcissism Mm -hmm. on the part of people and that narcissism can border on a sort of messianic complex if if you have the right brain chemistry or if you have the mm-hmm. right amount of loneliness in your life. And there's a scene in the first episode, I think, where this guy, like, bursts into tears and, is like, has to crawl up against the wall in a, a set of drawers. 
and it's because he's he's so lonely and that's why I wonder how much of what we're seeing is actually happening, how much yeah. of it is delusions. Well, a lot of the things that we talk about, like, for example, we talk about a, we talk about Homeland, and that is another show that has a brilliant but troubled lead who yeah. tends to abuse chemicals and not play well with others. We've seen, for, for occasionally we see Carrie Matheson at her best, but mostly we look at her the way her coworkers and colleagues do, which is like, what the hell is going on with this person? Why does she have the nuclear codes, basically? Like, yeah. why, why is anyone trusting this person with anything? The brilliance of this show is that it lodges us inside of him, not around him, but inside of him, so that we instantly feel, the, like, the enormous crush of of social expectation, of media, of of power, of his job, of, 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 every, of basically everything that someone who is basically a walking nerve would feel yeah and not only that we are we are in his head to the sense that he's he's talking to us there's a voiceover and most tv shows do not have this kind of voiceover most tv shows with voiceover are like the slap where it's like hector loved listening to jazz and it's like <laughs> cut to hector listening to jazz right you know it, it, it is not helpful and voiceover is usually hector <laughs> i know just a little just a little callback I you wish could we could resist. have a little bit of if, – if I, if I ran television, I would definitely yeah. just sh- shake up the Yahtzee cup and put yeah. a little bit of True Detective in the slap. Can you imagine yeah. if Velcoro was – Walked was the- into that barbecue and <laughs> beat the living <laughs> out of every child in front of him? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I can imagine it. That's I mean, it's actually it right not hard now. to imagine. That was pretty much episode one. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love that. Uh, Where's yeah, your but shoes? So, but this is voiceover used to like good – effect it's, yeah. it's actually showing and telling us in a way that voiceover usually doesn't and furthermore it's it's visually the show is so visually arresting and exciting that it papers over some of the you know there, there's there's some heavy writing there's some leaden yeah. writing in it there's some characters that don't fully add up but you are so taken with it it's totally exhilarating um even the way the show uses fonts you know even the way it looks the way it sounds yeah the, the way new york sequence. looks yeah New York almost never looks like this on TV, and it's not just the sort of the, the imposing dystopian Orwellian skyscrapers in Times Square. It's when they go out to Coney Island and they ride the Wonder Wheel, and everything feels sort of creepy. vivid and, and creepy. It, that and that scene reminded me of the Ferris wheel scene in The Third Man. Yeah. Yes, or in uh, one of my favorite Bond films, The Living Daylights. Yeah, that is great. Um, it's classic Bond. Classic Bond. I <laughs> love talking about that. I, if only Mr. Robot had a scene where Elliot and one of his many women. Go ski down a mountain in a cello case. You joke. This guy has a lot of girlfriends for somebody with a... This guy has so many girlfriends. Barely functioning morphine habit. Romantics full square. He's got four women in his life. And that's not even counting Gloria Rubin from ER, who seems really worried about him as a shrink. I Um, I think that the thing that will determine the long-term success or failure of the show, at least in terms of how much we like it, is... How much it falls into the trap of like this week on Mr. Robot, Mr. Robot fixes this problem. Like, and this is, goes back to the original USA branding idea that this yes. is essentially episodic television that you want to be able to pick up six episodes later on DVR if you didn't catch a few you, episodes you, you, p- prior. And how much will they have to repeat certain uh, serialized storylines by just so you know, this is Christian Slater and he's this, well, you know? Let me, let me hop in about that. So basically, the Blue Skies thing started to get cloudy. USA a couple years ago felt like that was limiting returns. It wasn't getting them the traction. It didn't seem to be endlessly repeatable the way it was for a few years. And it wasn't getting them the traction culturally or critically that they wanted, precisely for the reasons that you're saying. 
for a while, the idea of just having TV that could be watched in any order at any time was very appealing because then you could syndicate it and put it in reruns and whatever. That model doesn't really exist anymore, right? Serialization works because it hooks people in, it gets them binge-watching it, and it makes it more attractive to services like Netflix and Amazon who want you to start watching something and then be desperate to watch the rest of it. Yeah. So USA wanted in on that, and they took a few tentative steps with things like uh, Political Animals, which was a uh, miniseries with Sigourney Weaver yeah. and our man uh, – uh, our man star of Zoo, uh, Jimmy Wolk. Yeah. Uh, that didn't really work. But so th- they definitely want to get away, and this is the one that's going to get them away from it because this is already getting enough notice. I think it, I think it was already renewed for it's a second renewed, season. Yeah. Here's the thing that's going to be most interesting about this. So watch it because it's really good and it's really entertaining. But if you if you kind of like the inside baseballness of television – Watch it to see how long this can stay in the air, precisely because the reason why it's so exciting is because Sam Esmail is the writer and directed a bunch of the, the subsequent episodes. Had no intention of making a TV show. This was a feature script that mm-hmm. kind of got away from him. He'd, re- he'd made one indie film called Comet with his uh, then soon-to-be girlfriend, Emmy Rossum, which just shouts to Sam Esmail. I mean, that's just <laughs> salutes. Um, he... Uh, Basically, was writing Mr. Robot as a parallax view-like thriller, and he blew past 120 pages, which means it kind of can't be a movie anymore, and he kept, kept writing. His agents and his management at Anonymous Content, I guess, set up the meeting with TV people, and they were like, we want this to be a TV show. How would you change it? And he's like, I wouldn't. And they were like, what about the voiceover? We don't really do that. And he's like, I like the voiceover. And they were like, and you, so you have a place where you're going to end it because it was a movie. One thing that gets people into trouble on TV is when you fix an ending and write to it, right. you know, because things happen along the way. You should probably reconsider it. And he's like, yeah, I'm, I don't really want to do that. So I'm, I don't know if he's really the outlaw Josie Wales of the TV industry. I'm sure there were much more nuanced conversations. But again, if he's dating Emmy Rossum, maybe he is. Yeah, maybe he has but, the love of a good woman and just, just giving but, him confidence. But this is the sort of thing that can make for completely novel and arresting television that might flame out spectacularly yeah. like we, we haven't even mentioned slater who's really good as the the character who seems to be known as mr robot is the head of some sort of anonymous slash v for vendetta slash WikiLeaks. no it's uh, basically like his pump up the volume character if he had kind of just kept just, li- just doing his thing yeah just kept just kept listening to pixie's bootlegs and driving across the country until he hit coney island um <laughs> That character may not exist. Like, it is definitely shot to suggest a Fight Club kind of scenario Mm -hmm. where he might not exist. That's a hard thing to do for one season of TV, two seasons of TV, potentially more. They're going to have to decide one way or another what that is and deal with the ramifications. What's exciting about the show now is we don't have to worry about that. This is someone operating with complete confidence in a way that most TV shows don't. And if he pulls it off, it will be a truly great series and unique. And if he doesn't pull it off, it'll be a pretty spectacular... Uh, flame out and worth watching regardless. So I'm 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 really hyped on this. I know you are too. I, I feel like too. a lot I can't, of people. This, this comes with the, the Chris and Andy two thumbs up seal of approval. Um, hey, before we move on, let's take a break in today's podcast to talk about our sponsor SeatGeek. It's the best way for fans to save money on sports and concert tickets. SeatGeek aggregates tickets from every major ticket site online and puts them all in one place to make comparison shopping for tickets easy. It's basically like Kayak.com for sports and concert tickets. SeatGeek also has technology called DealScore that calculates what every ticket in the building is worth. Good deals are represented as big green dots on the map, and bad deals are shown as small red dots. So it's easy to see at a glance which tickets will save you the most money. For a limited time only, use promo code HOLLYWOOD in the SeatGeek app or website and get a $20 rebate off your first SeatGeek purchase. Again, 
to redeem your promo code and save $20, use Hollywood, like the name of our podcast, to save on your first SeatGeek purchase today. Look, man, we need to talk about Renner before we go. It's been a long day for you, and yeah. I know that you've had a lot of of, uh, of transportation issues. But uh, I have. Thank you. I have. Uh, Jeremy Renner did an interview with Playboy, which is uh, a fine a fine journalistic publication. Well, to be fair, Playboy has a long and proud tradition of in-depth Q&As. Photojournalism at its highest. And <laughs> the interview was conducted by Stephen Rebello, which is kind of this, – this is, this is neither here nor there, but he's like an old-school – Hollywood profile writer. He used to write for Movie Line, I think. Movie back in Line, the day. like the in the old days, Can and we just is the king. This? And 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 shouts to him is, but is one, somebody who I associate with the classic, like the lead of the piece is how much that, like when the last time he talked to this actor was, and like yes. what the vibe is between them as they like. Let- Tuck into some fillets. Let, let me just say sidebar this. I don't think any of them are online. But if you ever like go stumble in a garage sale where there's just like a box of movie lines from the nineties, this magazine was so good. Yeah. And in Rebello and uh, Larry Grobel, like this was them in their heyday. Yeah. They would just sit down with the actors of the moment who tended to be people like Julia Steve Roberts. Ulrich yeah. and Julia Roberts or Christian Slater. Yeah. And he would basically and they would just they would rap. Like you think you know what Q and A's are now? That's not what like, Q and A should be. How's your nephew? And they'd be like, "Oh my god, yeah, my nephew." It's just, no. And then like, the next question would be, "What is truth?" Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it was the combination of those, why did you of move the intimacy, to <laughs> the intimacy, and just the expansiveness of the universe? And so Rebello is back on his grind on this. Um, you can Google this this article. I mean, depending on the safety of your browser, you can Google this article on on Playboy. Jeremy mm-hmm. Renner, Playboy. Long-time listeners of the pod know that Renner is uh, a project that Andy and I have been working on for a long time, kind of like fixing up an old truck. Or an old house. <laughs> yeah. Or and an old house. It. Better put. And, you know, the first part, the first half of this interview, which I think is about 17,000 words long, uh, is about whether or not Renner's ever been in a fight, which he says he has not ever been in a fight. And Rebella's mm-hmm. like, well, let's talk about this incident where you, you choked a guy out for insulting your sister. And he's like, then goes on to list several times where he's had to choke a dude out. In but bars. still says he hasn't ever been in a fight. So I love that he's part. never been in a fight. Then we get to uh, Jeremy's extracurricular activities. Mm-hmm. And Rebello says, unlike many actors, you've managed to maintain a profitable side career for years. <laughs> flipping houses. Mm-hmm. Flipping houses with your longtime friend and business partner... Christopher Winters. Asterisk here. Christopher Winters is spelled K R I S T O F F E R. You didn't need to look that up. Because I read this interview, and I want to tell you that Christopher Winters sounds like a relative of Dr. Doom. Yes. Like Christopher Winters grew up in Latveria and definitely fought the Fantastic Four at some point. That's who he is. There's a lot of ways to answer Rebella's question. You could just be like, yeah, it's true, blah, blah, blah. I don't know if I could think – I don't know if you gave me 10 years if I could think of the next sentence and be happier. Yeah. In 2003, I had no money, but I had a contract to do SWAT. <laughs> my brother Christopher, he's a family friend forever, but I call him my brother, Yeah. came into a little bit of money, 10 grand or something. Mm. 
we lived together prior to SWAT and kept talking about how paying rent was such a dumb thing because you can't write it off on your taxes. Classic thing that you and I have always kicked around. We constantly talk about that. How stupid it is that we pay rent when we can't write it off. The, the only thing we talk about more than paying rent is SWAT, which is really a terrific movie in which the main character's name is Hondo. But anyway, go on. It's like throwing money away. We always wanted to invest in property. It became wait, a situation where wait. I could get a condo in the valley... And he could do the same. Or since we already lived together, we could buy a house together. <laughs> That's what we did. And we fixed it up the way we wanted for 30 grand. Can Rebello, I... you flipped that house, right? Renner. <laughs> we had a little wine shindig at the house. Stop it. Our real estate agent was there, and someone who was at the party offered twice what we paid for it. We turned that money into a bigger house and kept rolling from there. Being actors, we thought it all went to hell. At least we'd have a roof over our heads. But we didn't want to do the stock market or anything else. Never do the stock market. Don't let Josh Berlin talk you, tell you otherwise. Yeah, definitely not. So we kept acquiring bigger structures, which is a super common thing to call a house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now it's 20-some houses later between the two of us. Doesn't... Doesn't he at some point say, this current domicile? Doesn't he say, and he's yeah, like, it's a, this, later, I, I mean, in all of them, okay. and this one is my home forever, he at says? At some point, he I, refers to his IQ as being a buck 75. I have a couple things. First of all, <laughs> the conversation with Christopher about rent and about how it could all go to hell probably happened at a dog track, like on True Detective episode three. <laughs> I'm just going to say that that's probably, that's what I'm Skrillex bass drop! Two... Two, and this is fine, but the only time I've ever seen, quote, wine shindigs, yeah. end quote, with realtors, yeah. are at the end of an episode of House Hunters. Yeah. When people have moved to a new neighborhood and they have a staged party. You're Jeremy Renner. Friend... Why, why is your real estate agent at your party? Why don't you Why don't you call it a party? You had a party in the house. Why isn't the Renner entire cast it... of SWAT at your party? Why isn't Where's Josh cool Charles and LL there? Is LL in SWAT? Is it a party in a house? Or is it a shindig in a structure? Like, these are the kind of things we need to know more about. I don't, I'm just going to have a lot of shindig warming parties from now on. He, he sounds so crazy. And you're not even talking about the fact where they're like, do you shoot guns? And he's like, I respect weapons now because I've conquered all fear, comma, I have some swords, but I don't let my two-year-old daughter near them. Okay. This is, and, and now we have to get to the, the coup de gras, right? So There's so many things Of here. course, Rebello, being the, the consummate journalist, he brings yeah. up the, the infamous Golden Globes uh, situation oh. Oh, in which uh, yeah. Renner was presenting infamous. with Jennifer Lopez. Mm -hmm. She had a low-cut gown, and when it came time to give out the award, she asked, you want me to open the envelope? I've got the nails. And Renner said, you've got the Globes, too. That is. So he asks him about this. That's old Hollywood right there. And Renner goes, I just watched the show's opening monologue thinking, those girls, co-hosts Amy Poehler and Tina Fey, totally how people talk, <laughs> are so funny, awesome, and pretty racy. So I went out and that happened. It's my sense of humor. I don't take things too seriously. <laughs> except for flipping houses. Except for becoming real estate I didn't watch barons. any of the Globes. Yeah. Cool. I went to have a drink at the bar and I kept hearing people all night saying... Dude, that was the funniest thing. Bro, that was the best part of the show. I was like, what are you talking about? I was clueless. Hold on. I have a question. Oh, I have to ask you this question. 
Were people being nice to him at that bar because he had just choked someone who walked out? Who walked up to him and was like, bro, that was the funniest? I think he choked someone out at that bar and everyone was, was scared. Douglas. I hope he probably was. Uh, Rebella blew up on social media. Renner. Actually, Jennifer thought it was f***ing funny. <laughs> and got a little sweaty and maybe even turned on by the whole experience. What an asshole. <laughs> I know. We partied at a couple of events afterwards what? and had a good time. Other people started running their mouths about it. Everybody's entitled to opinion, but I can't be bothered. We gave zero f***s. Yeah. <laughs> I would have made a public apology if it really hurt her feelings. It was the complete opposite. And she's gone on record as saying... She thinks Renner's hysterical because <laughs> I talk about myself in the third person when quoting Jennifer Lopez. What happened to Jeremy? Go back to your f***ing shindig! <laughs> what happened? <laughs> what happened to him? Because part of this... Let's, let's be charitable. <laughs> Ten years ago, him and, him and Christoph, they're just, you know... They're just trying to put put things together. Put a roof over their heads. They're man. just trying to put a. They're trying to put a structure around. Get a around. structure with a thatched roof. They're putting a structure ar- around their individual lie down panels, which is what they call beds. <laughs> and they're watching the uh, the what, laser what disc of SWAT. Is, <laughs> and what I'm saying is, you know, he was in that movie Dahmer. Like, here's the thing about Jeremy Renner. He is a terrific actor. Sure, that's He's one really of our favorites. That, that's really all that matters. So what this, what I can't help but get get from this is that. There is a certain level of celebrity that one reaches, despite how man of the people he seems to be, you know, by, you know, working with with uh, with caulk guns and whatever else he's doing when he's renovating structures. You shouldn't put a microphone in front of him at a certain point. Yeah, because everyone is coming up to you and saying, bro, you're hysterical at a certain point. Enough people are calling you hysterical and saying he shrunk his circle to the point where it's Christopher and his real estate agent, and they're no, just and like, what, dude, you're the best. And Renner's whatever the best. agent got 20% of <laughs> Hansel and Gretel witch hunters. Yeah. And was like, this is a cool look for you, Oscar nominee Jeremy Renner. <sighs> so it's, it's a little painful. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing, but it's a little painful at the same time. Um, I don't think we can top that. Who talks like that? Jeremy Renner. Why does Jeremy <laughs> Renner talk like that? I don't know. Do you think... Do you think everyone in the Avengers talks like that? Like the reason Joss Whedon like basically walked away and threw. Well, a, this is the best. Is that some point in this because... thing? I think, or in maybe it was like at a different interview. He's recently been like, I basically don't know what's happening in Mission Impossible or the Avengers. Right. Like I show up. Yeah. I fly from Los Angeles to London to shoot this thing because I constantly want to see my kid, who I the mother of whom I divorced the week she was born or something like after that, ten months of allegedly marriage. or whatever. And he's just like, but I have no idea what's happening in Avengers. And, like, if I – if they tell me, like, you're needed from this time to this time, I'm happy. But if there's any overages or, like, delays or scheduling problems, I'm very grumpy. So he's basically like – I am, like, the fifth lead in Avengers and the third or fourth lead in Mission Impossible. And if the, everything is not planned to a T, I am basically going to be, like, a pain in the ass. 
And I have no idea what's happening in these movies because apparently I just don't stay in communication with the filmmakers. And I don't care. Yeah. It's no wonder people don't like tell him your jokes are bad because nobody talks to him. Nobody talks to him. He's like, I'm flying to New Orleans in a week to be in Captain America Civil War. And he shows up. He's like, hey, is Ruffalo here? (laughs) I mean, he doesn't know. I just think they all must sit together and talk like this to each other. They like high five over what he said to J-Lo and whether she got sweaty or not. And they all think they're fabulous. And then someone from the real world walks into the train. It's like, we need you guys on set. And they're like, good story, bro. Like, high five, complicated hug. And then, like, maybe they choke someone out just for old time's sake and they laugh. Go to sleep. Like, go to sleep. Like, what if Robert Downey Jr.'s Go to sleep. What if the guy wasn't really choked out? They were just like, Renner's like, yep, yelling, go to sleep. And the guy was like, pretending to go to sleep. sleep. I'm asleep now. You got me, Hawkeye. Yeah. (laughs) You got me. What's his name in Mission Impossible? Brant? Brand? Yeah, Brant. With Brandt. a D. With a, with a shindig. Oh, All right, man. man. Enjoy I, I your a, domestic structure. I, I had a. Can we go to one other point? I had a question for you. Sure. It's just like, I, I feel like we can't top that. And I, you know, feel free to turn off our podcast. Chris now, is hilarious, so you can ask him anything. I, <laughs> you, refer, you should refer to yourself by last name, though. <laughs> Ryan's hilarious. Ryan's a good guy. Um, I felt like something interesting happened over the holiday weekend that I just wanted to touch base with you on because it felt me, left me feeling very disoriented and a little bit alone. Sure, sure. And that is on Facebook, I noticed a certain much maligned subculture like coming out loudly and proudly in a the way that Grateful shocked Dead? me. That shocked me. Like all of a sudden, people that I knew, people I had worked with, people I had admired, <laughs> people I respected were all of a sudden outing themselves as deadheads and being like, what a groovy ride it's been here in Chicago, finally <laughs> fiddling with Jerry's ghost or whatever these people do. And I was really stunned how quickly culture has moved on this issue. Now, Right, because when we were in high school, those people were over there. Yes, like, I'm not trying to, like, put up walls. You know what I mean? I want people to, like, do the drugs they want and, you know, and, and just dance in fields to what they want to dance in fields to. That's cool. Right. But there definitely was a thing where it's like that – I, it was impenetrable and just bizarre to me as a subculture. I couldn't get it. And then, like, when we got a little bit older and we met other people who were writing about music, and there were a couple people who maybe had tendencies. Yeah. You know, there were people who were like, well, you know, Working Man's Dead has some jams on it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay, Uncle Uncle Joint. But, yeah, like, all of a sudden, many people are into this. And what happened? I don't know. Did, I mean, did, I don't have Facebook, so I don't know. I mean, I have it, but I don't look at it. Okay, Mr. Robot, that's cool. Like, way, to, <laughs> way to take down society from the inside. I'm, you're, you're, you're the real hero here, choking out corporate. Choose life, bro. But, like, is it because I don't people... know. I, like, I, I've tried to get in the den and I can't. Like, I've tried to have... Like, that sounded like a really good hot take to have for a while. Is like, I'm really into the den these days. And that seems like something I would say to you just to yeah. drive you insane. Yeah, um, I appreciate that. But, uh... I can't, I can't do it. And, you know, I guess I, okay, I'll put it this way. The people who were in Chicago that I knew who went, I sort of knew that they would be going to Chicago in the first place. So I guess I didn't have the the shock that you had. I mean, there's definitely some people, like, I think there's one person who we both know who is there, who at least publicly is much more into, like, dance music. Yes. But dance music, a lot of that is about the social happening, right? And, like, good times and fields. Yeah. Which is equally impenetrable to me. So uh, let's, let's not just tar hippies with with one brush let's just tar everybody right who likes to go to fields but i was surprised by that because it 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 seemed in some ways to be even more marginalized partly because the lead singer of the band died 21 years ago but also because 
it never was designed to enter the main culture, right? Like, it, it always was apart from the, the main yeah, culture. Yeah, but was I think very that those – I mean, those shows, like – I mean, and jam bands in general, like, just are – they draw massive crowds. Little, yeah, they always draw them, but it, I, I just didn't know – I didn't know you, how you many didn't people – like it showing up on your on your. Feed. I didn't know it touched my life yeah. is what I'm saying. Get out of I my mentions. Really, <laughs> I was really surprised by that. You were just taking it in stride. Yeah, man. Just let, let it flow – let the music flow through you. How many wine shindigs did you have this weekend? <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know at my next structure warming. I appreciate that. It sounds really, really welcome. All right, man. We're going to be back next week. We'll talk more about True Detective, and we'll get into some other stuff. Andy, always a pleasure. Great job, Baranski. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcasts.